0: Well, welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, well, the West has been living beyond its means for quite some time, as the UN report out this week shows, saying one million species face extinction. But we're not one of them. So what do we care? Unless you're poor, of course. So today we ask that timeless question, why are some countries so rich and some so poor? And what can we do about it? A good question to ask is one particularly rich child is born in London, and the world goes i go over it uh, that's today on the debunking economics podcast so steve the writ to the poorest nations in the world they are the democratic republic of congo the drc which we used to know as uh, zaire mozambique uganda tajikistan yemen haiti ethiopia tanzania now many of these are in africa many of them are at war Many of them are rich in mineral reserves, so we can't actually put it down to the fact that these are sparse countries with not much to to call on. Um, In fact, in various points in history, many of these countries, the West has kindly helped to extract some of their reserves. That's been really nice of them, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But let's let's start with the DRC, the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. It's got the lowest GDP in the world. It's got millions of people. It's got a civil war. It's got outbreaks of Ebola. It's not a great place to live its growth is around 2%. It's been hit hard by commodity prices. There's less demand from China for what they they are doing and their currency the Congolese franc has fallen a lot against the US dollar. But these are all artificial things, aren't they? I mean they, you know, it's this is all to do with with money and international trade. If they just yeah. block themselves off from the vagaries of yeah, you know, the value of currencies, and they had their resources, surely they'd do better. So that raises the question, you know, why are some countries so rich, and why are some so poor?
1: Well, I know mean, a lot of that actually relates back to an obvious answer for Africa, and that's slavery. Uh, the decimation of, uh, of African culture by the whole slavery trade, which you know, goes back you know, right to about the, the 1400s in, in Europe, and then, of course, very, very you know, dramatic for the industrialization of America. That was a huge part of why these countries have been devastated, uh, and, and uh, the extent to which the colonial powers played one tribe off against another, setting up some of the conflicts we've seen happen here. Uh, there's been, It was a huge destruction, in the productive capacity of Africa and also of, uh, of India. Mm. And that's something which, which when you've got a, a legacy like that where you've destroyed what was a viable society, uh, then it takes a long, long time to rebuild that society.
0: But it doesn't look like it's getting rebuilt anytime soon. I'm just wondering, you know, on this whole thing about uh, the artificiality of money. So the 20 poorest countries have an average income of $1,000 a year, which is three, less than $3 a day. But $3 a day would be fine, wouldn't it, if you didn't have those links to the US dollar? $3 a day is more than enough to feed your family if you can feed your family on $1 a day. It's you know, it's like it, the the problem is international trade, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've, we've actually, again, I think economic theory has led us massively astray here because economic theory, first of all, says you'll benefit by specialisation. So if one country specialises in, for example, diamonds, let's call that the Congo, mm-hmm. and other country specialises in, uh, in, 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 in in tools, let's say that well, like Germany, uh, then they'll both gain because there'll be a, a, a reallocation away from uh, using the same technology, I might add, that's part of the theory, a uh, relocation towards where the Congo has a comparative advantage, did over Germany, everybody benefits. Yeah. Now that, that uh, first of all, as, as I've uh, satirised in, uh, in my Econ Comics book, uh, that requires the free movement of capital from one industry to another, which is simply impossible. Uh, you can't convert machines that make machine tools into machines that dig up diamonds. Yeah. Uh, you simply can't do it. Uh, but also when we've seen historically... Uh, the countries that industrialised most rapidly, and this includes America, went through a period where they protected the domestic industries in the way that you're saying. And Michael Hudson has an excellent book, one of his very first, on this topic called America's Protectionist Takeoff. So America, which was a fairly underdeveloped country you know, from about uh, you know, the late 1400s to about um, 1700, uh in in the late 1700s, early 1800s, they put up large tariffs and basically meant you you had huge prices to buy that British steel or German steel, or you could establish your own steel industry. And because they had the economies of scale that were thrown open by the the entire American continent and the whole Manifest Destiny movement from the East Coast to the West, uh, they uh, dramatically industrialized, and within about thirty years were a rival to. Uh, Europe and its industries rather than being a backwater as they were before the protectionist period so mm. insulating yourself from in trade using your resources and forcing your local capitalists to invest and improve the technology over time that's uh, been a successful recipe for for many countries and yet what we sell to them is the idea you should actually be mm. uh, liberalizing opening up to free trade that's that's the mantra they're taught and it, it no, does not work in theory? Does it doesn't work in practice? And all we need
0: is your local currency to reach parity with uh, with currencies in the West, and everything will be fine. But of course, that that whole argument of comparative advantage also disappears out the window, doesn't it? At the moment countries start investing in other countries, so uh, if they were mining uh, for all of those uh, diamonds by themselves rather than having foreign entities doing it, maybe they would be slightly better off. But let me play something from the vice president of research at the St. Louis Fed. In the Federal Reserve in the United States. He's called B. Rabbi Kumar. Uh, he did a video, his take on why some countries are so rich and others are so poor. He says the income gap. Between the richest and the poorest countries has grown from a factor of two to a factor of thirty-five, and here is his explanation of why the reason for this for this difference.
2: So the way economists look at it is that let's go measure the inputs. What are the inputs? Some examples of inputs are physical capital and human capital. So let's think about physical capital for a minute. Physical capital could be all kinds of equipment and structures sitting in an economy. So you got buildings, you got laptops, you got lights, you got assembly lines, human capital could be measured in lots of ways. Schooling, for instance, is a form of human capital. Other forms of human capital could be just learning on the experience, on the job training. At best, these inputs account for 40 to 50%. That's all you can explain in terms of cross-country income differences. That means there's a bulk of it that we do not know, that we cannot measure directly using inputs. So that's what's causing these differences. So the part that we do not know, economists typically call total factor productivity. Now, total factor productivity is one of those objects that you don't get to see directly, but you get to infer it indirectly. So it looks at how efficiently these inputs are transformed into output. So given the same amount of input, a country that transforms it more efficiently will have higher GDP. Countries that take those inputs and transform them inefficiently will have lower GDP, but without a model, it's very difficult to proceed any further than what I've told you in terms of just accounting. So that's what economists work on right now. I'm currently thinking about the angle of how much of a role that international trade plays in thinking about cross-country income differences. (laughs) So there we go. It's all international trade. Mm. Um, But, I mean, the
0: inputs aren't the same. So he's saying, you know, the, the inputs aren't the same, and then how those inputs are created to create wealth are different. But if the inputs aren't the same, you're never going to get the ability to use those inputs more effectively, are you? So surely yeah, I mean, that, surely that's the answer to foreign aid, isn't it? We just need to make sure the uh, the whole world has, you know, a similar level of inputs into their economy, whether it's educational, whether it's resources, uh, technology. Surely if we did that, would be a long way towards solving the problem, wouldn't we?
1: Well, I think it's a, the it's a whole idea that it's total factor productivity again is where economic theory is leading us astray because that's that the, the thinking that comes out of that is looking at what's called the Cobb Douglas production function, where they say that output is a function of the amount of labor you have raised to one power uh, times the amount of capital raised to one minus that power, so you get constant returns to scale, mm. times the factor they call total factor productivity. Now, uh, this idea of total factor productivity is supposed to abs- uh, absorb the change in technology uh, that c- occurs over time. Uh, but in fact, uh, when it was, the economists expected most of the Change in GDP to be caused by a change in labor or a change in capital, and when they broke it down into the three elements where that change could occur, one was this total factor of productivity, another labor, another capital. They found eighty-five percent of it turned up and being in the total factor of productivity element, which is why they talk about total factor of productivity, and they look about you know whether it's human capital or yada yada yada. When I look at this, I always thought total factor of productivity was just a total kludge uh, because it. It is a residual in the model. The model itself talks about labour and capital producing output. When I worked out the energy equation a couple of years ago, and I fed that into the Cobb doctor's production function, uh, the, my argument was that what we're actually doing, both machines and labour, is taking energy we find in the universe, which neither be created nor destroyed, taking that energy, converting part of it into useful work and the rest into necessarily into waste, uh, and then that useful work becomes GDP, when you factor that through the equation, what turned up as being the total factor productivity term was, in fact, the contribution of the energy throughput of the representative machine at the time to production. So what, we've, what we're measuring is an increase in total factor productivity is actually an increase in the capacity of our machines to process energy. And that's where the countries differ quite dramatically. Mm. That's what you need to improve. And looking at now at the the map of the Congo, according to the Atlas of Economic Complexity, and this is one thing I highly recommend people to take a look at because it will give you a picture of what different economies are like using the uh, Standard International Trade Classification Database, the SITC database. Uh, They've classified imports and exports for, for as many product divisions as possible yeah. going back over the last 40, 50 years. And what they've then done is work out a, a, a mathematical measure of how far one industry is from another industry to decide where they place these in a web, which is called the uh, complexity visualisation. Now, looking at the Congo's map, and there's an entire... In the, in this map, it's the map is exactly the same for every country on the planet, and the circles that are shown are the scale of these different industries in world trade. So the biggest circle in the middle of the, uh, the big web, have a guess what the circle is. Don't know. Don't know. Car- cars. Right. Cars. Yeah. The way okay. well, the Congo has, uh, the, which is way, way out off, off, the, off the map, have a guess what that is.
0: Uh, some some Petro- form of agriculture, I guess. Petroleum. All oh, right. okay. okay. Yeah, because yeah, oh, yeah, they do have per- good resources. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so the petroleum the is main, the main thing they can do. Now, the, the middle structure, which is where the, 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 this is the web that gives you the capacity to reduce industrial goods, is completely empty in the case of the Congo. There are, mm. I think there's one, one con- containers for multimodal transport and what's this, uh, plants used in perfumery, pharmacy or insecticide are the only two elements that actually turn up having anything populated in them. Now, if you compare that map to a map of Germany, and I'll just bring up Germany's data right now.
0: Well, while you're doing that, let me, yeah. ask, you, let me ask a question. So you've got a, a country like that where, let's take a very poor country like the Congo, for example. There will be people in, in parts of that country which might be carrying water from a well, for example, Mm. and they're not getting paid for it. If that person, that same person, had been born in a rich country, they would be doing something else that they do get paid for and would be counted as contributing to the GDP of that country. The fact that they live in a poor country uh, and there's not the facilities there to pipe water to their houses uh, means they're not earning any money in that poor country. They're carrying water from a well, so there's no opportunity there if we provided the same level of opportunity, in other words, if that infrastructure, if the West was investing in that infrastructure so that person wasn't carrying that water from the well, they could do something else. Here you have a country which is rich in resources, energy-wise, masses of sunshine, so you could build solar plants. um, Surely we're well on the way then of, you know, whether it's input, however you want to declare it, those inputs in, you know, the way that that guy was talking are helping to create greater outputs for, for, for that country just by deploying the resources that are already there?
1: Well, you need to build a network, and this is the network that actually helps the process one industrial good and produce another industrial good. And countries like Congo are completely lacking in that network. No. If they specialize in what's called comparative advantage, they'll remain forever trapped where they currently are, whereas what they've got to do is build this web in the middle where they bring all the industries together, which countries like Germany have. It's actually its probably worth, uh, I'll whack you a, a copy of these two graphics to whack on the on the podcast as well just to compare what what the highly industrialised country looks like when you compare it to a non-industrialised country. Yeah. And when you look at it this way, you think you've got to fill that web and how do you get there? How can you actually get to this middle section where you have a, a full industrial structure? Right. And and the answer there is look at what you've currently got and find where you've got a adjacent industry you can develop out of the ones you've currently got and start filling the web out in that way and that becomes a domestic domestically-oriented investment strategy, not something based on specialisation and international trade.
0: Right, but They're not going to do that on their own, are they? I mean, they are going to need money to be able to do that sort of stuff. But, I mean, Africa is a big continent, the forgotten continent. A lot of people living there. I mean, you don't need to do everything in the one country. There's a lot of neighbouring countries as well. The problem is they are at war with most of those neighbouring countries, but trade has a good way of stopping wars as well. It feels as though we just... There's an, there's an obvious answer to all of this, but we're not tackling it. Let me play another clip. Here's uh, here's someone you'll recognise, Bob Geldof, talking about the uh, you know the, okay. the man who gave us Live Aid, talking about the helping the poor and the hungry in Africa.
2: I think it's a question of
0: credibility. Um, in 2005 the wealthiest economies uh, promised to double aid to Africa by the year 2010 uh, to a sum of 50 billion dollars. Remember that Europe, the wealthiest continent in the planet, is 12 kilometers from the poorest continent in the planet and each year Europe receives more aid, Europe the wealthiest continent receives more aid than Africa the poorest continent. 50 billion is a small sum so we give, in the UK now, just 0.7% of our gross national income goes in foreign aid, and half of that goes to Africa. The countries that receive the most are Pakistan, Syria, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Afghanistan. War and famine spending, largely, is where our uh, foreign aid goes to. So that's actually not money being spent on lifting people out of poverty, is it? That's sort of like a stopgap measure for the problems which are being created because of, this, uh, because of poverty, rather than actually trying to solve the root cause.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, looking at foreign aid is something I actually I spent a bit of my time involved in that in Australia for about three years working in freedom from hunger and so on. And, you know, th- 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 these are trivial amounts of money and there's probably more coming out in terms of of, of, rev- of uh, oil revenues like you know, foreign companies operating in those countries and taking the profit out, which, of course, violates the whole comparative advantage model in the first place. So, yeah, there's more money coming out than going in in foreign aid anyway. Uh, and it's I think remember a wonderful cartoon for, by uh, the old classic cartoonist uh, Cobb, and uh, he had a a Mexi- I think it was a Mexican being strangled by one American arm while being fed by another, and turned to say, "Excuse me, Senor, does your left hand know what your right hand is doing?" <laughs> but it's it
0: doesn't have to be like this, though, does it? I mean, if, if I mean, there's this fear, isn't there, that if we give too much to uh, to to poorer countries were somehow going to be worse off as a result of it. I mean it's there's no reason for that to be the case. Surely if Africa was to become a wealthy continent like Europe, we'd all be better off as a result of
1: that. Well I think the the classic instance of that was what was done with the Marshall plan to reconstruct Europe after the second world war. And America benefited from that as well for investing in that country. And yes you got a you know a bit you know the the modern world we have is i think the marshall plan played a large role in making that the livable world that it is uh versus the focus we have now on you know not giving anything to anybody and uh, and and resenting the foreign aid we give mm. uh, but i but I, I would rather see us helping it to build the industrial structure of these countries uh, and and that involves technology transfer and it involves Letting them produce for the domestic market. Now, of course, once you've got major corporations that have got various markets uh, dominated, um, then they are going to be opposed to that. So often, the corporations pushing free trade are the ones who've benefited out of the, uh, the industrialization of the West, and not about to let those industries turn up in the East unless they can actually profit by relocating production there and sending it back to um, the first-world countries. So you're not you're not getting a building of a, a domestic. Uh, industrial capability out of that. So what is,
0: so how do you do that then? Well, I mean, is it just a case of, well, we need to step up foreign aid, but that foreign aid, we obviously need to, to deal with emergencies. But on top of that, we need another slug of money, perhaps the same again or more, which is actually being spent on on infrastructure so these countries can industrialise.
1: I would I would rather, again, as you said, the, the, a lot of the, um, problem to places like the Congo is they're focused obsessively on the foreign trade side of things. You've got massive corruption coming out of, out of that as well. You want to have an industrial development program instead on domestic industries and try to build your own local capability as much as you can given the scale of the industries you're talking about. And That's why I really like the work of the Atlas of Economic Complexity because part of it is to say, well, what have you got at the moment? That means with those three industries, this one is a neighbouring industry, which you already have some of the technology you need for that. So to take a look at the Congo uh, on that basis, it has wood soaring. That's not amazing. It has wood in the rough. It has, what's this one, sheets for veneering. It doesn't have wood shaped along its edges, (laughs) uh what it's saying, well, given the technology you've got in the other industries, you can probably produce that one as well. And then the next one that is nearby, which gets you into this industrial cluster, uh, is structured in the parts of iron and steel. Let's rule that one out for the temporarily. But you can say, here's the pattern you've currently got. It's easier to build something which is nearby in that pattern than something which is massively remote. Let's start building on that. To, to give one part of the uh, Congo, which actually is part of this, the, the, the sort of the core of an industrial system uh, containers for multimodal transportation they appear to have industry in that basis that industry then depends upon a range of neighboring industries you could say your industrial program should be focused upon those industries to build on what you currently have and start expanding that way
0: right but the problem is the moment you start putting and you can understand why corruption happens the moment you start putting US dollars into a, into a country where their currency is worth so little against the dollar, then the temptation for somebody to say, "Well, if I can take just a small slice of this, I will have, I'll have an enormous palace as a result of it." Given that it's so cheap to buy stuff here, that temptation is, you know, foreign currency is always going to be the distorting influence, isn't it?
1: Yeah, which is why I'd rather say to do it domestically, build up your try try to maintain a trade. You know, if, again, you know, this is a bit of um, well, not heresy, but it goes against the MMT argument. Uh, build up a trade surplus. We, we give yourself a buffer out of a trade surplus to begin with use that trade surplus to start industrial policy where you build on what you currently have to build an industrial backbone that makes you more self-sufficient that's what i'd like to see these countries doing so and the, again yeah it doesn't uh, have
0: to cost a lot then it's more the will and the way rather than uh, the, the money involved
1: yeah, it's, it's, it, and it's in deciding what is actually a viable way to build an industry. I mean, you had the you know, crazy stuff like uh, under Mao, you had the idea of China suddenly becoming uh, capable of producing all the iron steel it needs by building backyard furnaces, which destroyed a large part of the country. Uh, what you've got to say is instead of what do we currently got, what can we actually build on initially? And just again, looking at the map for the Congo, uh, one thing that Congo does have is plants used in the prefer- Perfumery, pharmaceutical, insecticide—believe it or not—that is not particularly distant from windows, women's undergarments. What else <laughs> we got here? Uh, uh, women's suits and pants, and then we have down here bags for packing goods. Uh, it's saying, well, that's these are these are potential industries you could build some capability out of uh, that you currently have and start filling out this web. So, should
0: you do need money to do all of this? Of course. So, is the idea of 0.7 percent of our gross national income, which is where the UK is now, a lot of countries are well below that. The United States is, for example, Australia's uh, only spending about 0.3 percent. Is that a start? I, I, it sounds like we're just putting a number there without necessarily having a, a, a strategy behind it.
1: Well, the main thing you've got to, to, to build this type of industrial structure. You've got to need capital goods. You've got to be you've got to bring in the machinery in the first instance and that certainly can't be produced domestically. so you'd need to have I would rather have an agreement for technology transfer um, up to a certain percentage of GDP rather than just giving the money over. Uh, that's, that's and being willing to do it of course this is the other thing when you have corporations which currently dominate a market globally, <clears throat> they don't necessarily want competitors. And, of uh, course, the fact that China did a very effective technology transfer over time is one reason why Donald Trump is trying to block them now. Uh, in fact, it might be intriguing just to have a look at that whole issue and see what was China like uh, Before. many, many years ago. Yeah, And, uh, yeah, China now has a – everything actually – cars are the one thing it hasn't got in that overall pattern. But if I go back to the data it had for, say, 19 uh, – let's see if I bring up 1996 here <clears> – <throat> Yeah, you can, you can see over time the, uh, the building of this overall industrial web that China's managed to do by a quite deliberate decision to, to grab American technology and bring it domestically. Uh, we need to achieve a similar thing for the countries of the rest of the world. Well, if, if Elon
0: Musk decided he was going to actually move to the Congo, uh, he would save the country single-handedly, I suspect.
1: Trouble is then how much of that actually, with the technology he needs, matching to what the rest of the technology currently is. And that's why, again, this map is a good idea because it says don't just move, you know, something glamorous, holus, bolus. Move things that there's currently something resembling a support structure for in your society. Build on what you've got. But
0: if you you were to help them industrialise and you were doing it by, yes, by, you know, developing the capital, that would be good for the companies in the West, which are helping them develop that capital. I mean, we would win from that, wouldn't we?
1: One imagines that's possible. But again, uh, the extent to which people don't want to give you know, lose the control they've currently got, I'm not sure they'd see it that way. Right. But if there was a bit
0: of government money to say, well, okay, that's you know, the, the payoff is going to be, that we're to, you know, the government is going to be buying this stuff. So I, I know what you're saying. You don't want to give away your intellectual property but uh, and your way of operating but uh, but maybe but you know, maybe, so that's why maybe the China approach is the way where you say, well, okay, you, you're still going to retain half,
1: yeah, yeah, and that's the, that's what they've managed to do they've 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 built up not just the industrial structure but the capitalist class as well, uh, and they've built the innovation, and now they're rivaling America. Um, I, I don't think you can do that on a global scale. Again, a lot of the countries that have been successful have gone for export-oriented industrialization in the first element, build up a export surplus out of that, reinvest the money, build your industrial capability over time. That's classically what South Korea has done, it's what Japan did as well. Uh, there isn't the room for that anymore, but there is room to say let's... Uh, Bring ourselves up by our own bootstraps, use the resources we have, use the industry we currently have, start building this industrial structure. And to some extent, we require technology transfer from the West or these days from China to achieve that. It's feasible, but uh, the odds of it happening... Well,
0: low. they are very low because we don't really care too much about africa do we that's the that's the problem we certainly don't like the idea of uh, spending money on foreign aid it seems because let's you know remind ourselves of the prevalent attitude in the uk right now much of the west so look at ukip for example mm. i mean their policy is that we should reduce foreign aid to 0.2 percent of gnp which is what the us spends on foreign aid right now australia is, as i say is spending about 0.3 percent and then we have uh politicians like this this is Uh, Tory backbench MP Philip Davis talking about this whole thing. Can I tell the Prime Minister that spending more and more money on overseas aid each year does not make us look compassionate to the public, it makes us look idiotic to the public when that money is much needed in the United Kingdom. So can she... She promised to slash the overseas aid budget, spend it on priorities in the UK. I hope she doesn't have a strange political aversion to pursuing any policies that might be popular with the public. Yeah, that's what the public wants. So we, I mean, uh, we need to use our money that we have here, here, rather than trying to help the whole continent of Africa, even though, as you and I have discussed many a time, the money here we can just
1: create and use. Yeah, I know. It's, it's We got ourselves caught in so many illogical traps over all this. But it, it's also, there were no protests about the 0.7% target when it was set back in the early 1950s, I think, because at that stage, with the distribution of income we had in the West, with the relative prosperity that the working class people felt back then, it was possible to feel the sense of generosity. Uh, given the level of inequality now and the fact that people are forming form movements like the gilets jaunes uh, in, the, in, the, in the West, mm. it's just showing, again, the impact of that increased domestic poverty, uh, increased inequality domestically and, and, and the fragility people feel at the bottom end of the social spectrum. Then, yes, their anger can easily be turned outwards.
0: Right, because however bad it is in the Congo, it can't be as bad as it is here in Bradford
1: would be the uh, would be the feeling wouldn't it i guess yeah i think so unfortunately
0: mm. all right okay well look we've got the answer if anyone wants to listen uh, it's been an interesting discussion um, i know it's not something we normally talk about but uh, it's a big it's a big part of the world and it's often forgotten about and i feel yeah. like there has to be an answer and maybe we're part of the way there good to talk
1: steve Okay, Matt. Talk again, and I'll send you some maps to put up on the blog post as well. Now, next
0: time we're going to look at energy. Uh, if we see oil prices rise, does that mean automatically we see money invested in alternative energy? In which case, do we really need to worry? Are we going to move away from fossil fuels? by nature of the forces of the economy the invisible hand will the invisible hand save us or do we need to look at other ways of trying to ensure that we move away from fossil fuels we'll look at that next time on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve keen i'm phil dobby thanks for listening hold
1: up what was that